Uh, hey, uh, good to see you guys again. Like I said, if, if you, maybe if you walked in a little bit later, my name's Mike. Uh, glad you guys could be here tonight. Uh, it's funny, this is, this is my third sermon in, uh, in, a, in a matter of t- seven days. So um, it's been, uh, I mean, that's not really anything. <laughs> Thanks, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you don't know if they're good or not, um, but what was that? Well, last Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but it's awesome. It's funny. Uh, like preaching on Sundays is great, but like it's just there's just something special for me about getting to preach to you guys every week. Uh, I love getting to do that. So um, it's really really cool. It's like getting to, it's like it's like preaching to family. So uh, hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to First Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight is where we're going to be uh, tonight. And uh, one thing that I want to I want to talk to you tonight about something that uh, is so incredibly special that so few people have. But I will tell you this: that if you have this one thing, it will spare you so much heartache and so much difficulty in your life. If you have this one thing, it will, it will help you, it will give you the wisdom to make the right choices. It will allow you to be able to discern what's, you know, right and what's wrong. But like I said, it's something that so few people have, and it's oftentimes something that people mainly only get through experience. And it is a little word called perspective. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Right? Perspective. Really, perspective is the thing that I think it, that, dif- that differentiates between a wise person and a foolish person. And I think one thing is that oftentimes you gain perspective through experience, right? But oftentimes, I'll tell you this, that you can also gain perspective by listening to the advice of other people who have gone before you. And I think one of the hardest things to have, especially as a young person, is perspective. It's funny, I say that as I'm 29, and I don't have all the perspective in the world, but so it's like those people in the room who are older than me, they hear me talking about perspective, and they probably laugh a little bit to themselves, which is okay, but I want to talk to you about tonight, about what is it, what are we talking about when we talk about having perspective? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to see the people of Israel in an interesting situation that could have all been avoided if they just had a little bit of perspective. Over the past several weeks, we've been going through 1 Samuel, and we've seen some pretty fascinating things take place in this book. And like I said, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel when we get to it. So I encourage you like, to read you know, during the week, to kind of read either read ahead. I, I encourage you to read ahead or read the things that we uh, may have skipped that we're not going to be uh, talking about necessarily on Tuesday nights. But we've seen some pretty incredible things. Just the past couple weeks, we saw uh, a few weeks ago, we saw what happened when Israel had a misplaced faith. You remember that? We talked about when Israel had a misplaced faith. And, and what that misplaced faith led to was ultimately their defeat and the Ark of the Covenant being taken from them, being captured by the Philistines. And then last week, we kind of left Israel over here and we followed the Philistines to see, okay, what's going on with the Philistines now that they've taken the Ark? And ultimately what we saw is that the Philistines, they, we saw that God showed himself to be greater than the gods of the Philistines and how God does not share space with anybody, that ultimately God is to be worshipped exclusively. And eventually what we see is that the Philistines realized that when, God, when they realized that God would not coexist with their pagan gods, 
Rather than repent and turn in belief to him, what they ultimately do is they send the ark away. And then eventually the ark returns back to Israel. Now, we didn't, cover this la- uh, we didn't cover this last week. We're kind of like skipping this part. But, um, but it's imp- I think it's important for you to know that ultimately when the ark returns, Samuel leads the people in repentance. He leads the people to repent. He tells them to repent, put their idols away from them. And ultimately, when they repent from their idolatry and they turn away from their idolatry, they end up defeating the Philistines in battle in a pretty incredible way. And what they do afterwards is they take a stone. It's a stone of remembrance. They set it up, and it's, this, it's like this marker for them to remember what God has done for them. And it's the term, they call it, it's a word called Ebenezer. So if you think of in, uh, in that hymn where it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, right? It's the, what that's talking about is here I raise, this is the, my, my way of, this is the thing that I use as a remembrance of what God has done in my life. So they set up the stone of remembrance, but what we will soon see is how quickly they forget. And oftentimes how quickly we forget. So I'm going to read to you 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to see what happens next with the people of Israel. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel rule, uh, prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the, uh, of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, uh, orchids, orchards, there we go, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we, may also, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. So there's a lot that we can get into into this text. By the way, congratulations, you just read a whole chapter of the Bible. That took about a minute. Good job. There's a lot we can get into into this text, but the first thing that we need to see is this. We need to see this, a foolish fantasy. 
There's a foolish fantasy. Like I said, when uh, we pick up with Samuel here, and Samuel, according to the text, is clearly old. We see that a lot of time has passed from where we last, lost, la, 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 last left off with Samuel. Right? Where we last saw Samuel was chapter 7, and what it ultimately said was that Samuel served God and Israel faithfully all the years of his life. We know that this is at least 20 years after the last time we see Samuel, but we know that clearly that Samuel is an old man at this point. Samuel is widely regarded as one of the godliest men in all of the Bible. I want you to notice that, he is, that, that Samuel, while he is, he is noted as one of the godliest men of all of Scripture, his life is not necessarily marked by huge moments of his display of faithfulness. You notice that? That we, we saw Samuel when he was a young man, and now we skip, and now he's old. But we still see that he is incredibly, he's a godly man. He is obedient to what God has called him to do. But we see that it's not necessarily marked by these massive moments where he's displaying his faithfulness, but really that most of Samuel's life in Scripture is simply silent and steady obedience. Right? And then there's occasional moments where he's kind of brought to the front. Likewise, just as a side note tonight, I want you to see this, that the most important thing about your life is not necessarily what is said about you in the moments where the spotlight is on you. Rather, the most important thing about your life is those moments of silent and steady obedience that you exhibit over the course of your life. Now, the most important thing about you is not what happens when you're in here, when everybody is looking, but what most, what's most important about you is what happens when no one is looking, when no one sees it. Silent and steady obedience. Samuel's private life, what you see is Samuel's private life poured over into his public life. And you should know that that is always the case. A lot of us kind of get it twisted that, that we think that our public life is what pours into our private life, but you need to know that it's actually the opposite. Your public life does not fuel your, pri your private life. Rather, it is what you do in private that will always make itself public. Even so, while Samuel is a godly man, he's incredibly obedient to what has got him, God has called him to do, he makes a poor decision here. He appoints his two sons to be judges over Israel. This is a poor decision. Well, what's wrong with this? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Judges, the role of being a judge at this time in Israel's history, judges were not appointed by men. If you read the book of Judges, what you see is that God, God ordains judges for a specific purpose for a specific period of time. Judges were never picked or assigned by the people of Israel, and the judgeship was never passed down. But here, Samuel makes a poor choice. He makes a poor decision here. He appoints his two sons to be judges over Israel, which was not his job to do, which he was not supposed to do. Judges were never appointed by men. They were always appointed by God. So here's one, another side note I want you to see. While Samuel was faithfully obedient, even faithfully obedient people make poor decisions every once in a while. Right? That not perfect. Right? Samuel's sons here, it said that he did, they did not walk in his ways. Ultimately, talking about Samuel's ways. And it appears, though, that what we see in this passage is that Samuel is not held accountable or responsible for the sins of his sons like Eli was held accountable for the sins of his sons, if you remember. And I think there's several reasons for this. I think one of the most likely reasons is that Samuel probably was not aware of what his sons were doing. 
It says that Samuel lived in Ramah while his sons were judges in Beersheba, which is about 100 miles south. So it's very likely that Samuel had no idea what his sons were doing. But what happened is that the elders of Israel immediately notice a problem, right? They see Samuel is old, which means he's probably not going to be around very long, if you know what I'm talking about. Right? He's probably not going to be around for much longer. The two sons that he has set up as kind of a succession plan are clearly not going to work. So something has to change. Something has to change. And, I, and here it's important that we understand that the elders of Israel were not exactly wrong. In fact, what we actually see is they show a decent amount of wisdom here. The problem is not that. The problem is what they do next. If you see in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's always a good opening line. I, I don't suggest using that. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, before we jump all over the elders of Israel here, I think it's important to note that it was not inherently wrong for them to ask for a king. It was not inherently wrong for them to desire a king. In fact, if you actually go back into uh, the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy, you see that God actually gives Israel specific laws for their kings, even though they don't have kings yet. If you read the Bible, what you see is actually it was always God's plan for his people to have a king. The problem was not the, the, the fact that they desired a king. The problem was why they wanted a king. The problem was their motivation for wanting a king. And I'll be honest, this is honestly where many of us find ourselves. Many of us in this room find ourselves in this particular situation where the problem isn't exactly that you want bad things. The problem isn't that you want bad things. The problem oftentimes is the motivation for why you want those things. And what we do is we justify our desires because we look at them and say, well, they're not bad things. When the problem is not the thing you want, the problem is why you want it. Boyfriends, girlfriends, jobs, money, friends, and so on. The problem many times is that our motives are wrong. James 4, 4, what does he say? You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. See, and what's so dangerous about this is that we so often aren't even aware of our sinful motives. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? Is what? That the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're good at convincing ourselves that our motives are God-honoring. Right? When there's things that we want, we convince ourselves that the reason we want those things are actually God-honoring. But when in reality, what, the actual, what actually is going on many, many times is that they're actually self-serving and ultimately self-destructive. And what was the motivation for the people of Israel? They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And here we ultimately get to the problem that Israel wanted to be like the rest of the nations. That's the problem. Israel wanted to be like the rest of the nations. And if we are honest, so do we. If we're honest, so do we. We want to be like the culture that we find ourselves in. This is everybody in this room. 
including me on this platform, there is a sinful desire for us to be a part of the culture, to look like the culture. And I'm convinced that this is why people do so much of the things that they do. So many of what people do is not because they like those things, but they know other people like those things. So they do it so they can fit in. I'll never forget, me and Kayla, we, were, we went out somewhere. I don't remember where we were, but we were with like, someone that like, she was friends with in high school. And like, we don't really see this person, but they invited us to go like, to dinner for them for their birthday. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and, like, and this girl, like, she, you know, she, she had a beer or whatever. And just remember, she looked at Kayla and I. She goes, she goes I, I can't stand the way this tastes, but I look cool when I drink it. And like the, but here's the thing, that's what so many of us do. I don't like it, but I know other people like it, so I'm going to do it until eventually I like it. And I'll be willing to bet that this is where some of you find yourselves. Ask yourself this question, how much of what you do is because other people enjoy it? And you simply just don't want to be left out. See, we have professing Christians that would rather be rejected by God than their friends. Think about this. We have people who profess to be Christians who would rather be rejected by God than their friends. Israel meant to be Israel was meant to be the light to the rest of the nations. If you remember, God's purpose for Israel in the land of Canaan was for them to be a light to the nations around them. Israel was God's chosen people for his special purpose. He executed judgment on his enemies through Israel. He showed his goodness and his glory through Israel. But now Israel is crying out to be more like the nations. Israel was no longer satisfied with being set apart. Think about this. Is that the people that God had chosen to be the me that that the, the nations, sorry, the nations we're supposed to look at Israel and want to be more like Israel. Meanwhile, Israel looks at the nations and they're wanting to be more like the nations. And this, uh, this, is, and this is what motivated them to ask for a king. And I'm immediately reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. What does Paul say in Romans 12? He says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, God's desire is that we would be transformed more into the likeness of Jesus. God's desire for you is that you would be more like Jesus and less like the world. God's command on our lives is that we would be different. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And in doing so, if you were here Sunday, you heard me talk about this, is that when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, it will naturally put us at odds with the world. John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, just like Israel, you and I are called to be different. We're called to be different. Different than the world. Matthew 5, 13. What does Jesus say? He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Notice what Jesus is saying here, is that if salt loses what makes it distinct, it is no different than dirt. That if salt loses what makes it salt, what makes it different, then it's no different than dirt. Continuing on in verse 14, you are a light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is also worth noting that we are not called to be different simply for the sake of being different. I think when we talk about this idea of, like, you know, being set apart, we forget the fact that God has called us to be set apart. Set apart. apart. God has called us to be set apart for a specific purpose. And I think a lot of us have a wrong idea of this. We have this idea that we're called to be set apart because of, well, the world is dirty, and if I touch that, if I get to it, then I'll become dirty too. And God will reject me. If that is your idea of being set apart and living a holy life as God has called you to live, you have a wrong understanding. And of course, we want to avoid sin. Of course, we don't want to just, you know, excuse sinfulness and different things like this. But what you see in the scriptures is that the main reason that we're called to live lives that are set apart is because of the result that it brings. Go back to Matthew 5, what Jesus just said. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds. And what? What should they do after they see your good deeds? They should glorify, your God, glorify God, glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Pastor Ethan preached on this a few weeks ago. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Understand this. You are not saved by your good works. This is like Christianity 101. You are not saved by your good works. God does not need your good works. But understand this, your unbelieving neighbor does. You are not saved by your good works, but your unbelieving friends may just come to salvation because of it. The greatest evangelistic tool that you have is the uniqueness of your life coupled with the power of your words. You with me? Is that if you speak the gospel, but your life does not reflect the gospel, your testimony is worthless. Likewise, if your life, if your life is set apart and different, but the gospel never leaves your lips, then it's very well probably for no purpose. It is the uniqueness of your life combined with the power of the gospel leaving your lips. That is what changes lives. That is the greatest evangelistic tool that you have. See, a Christian that looks just like the world has nothing of value to offer the world. You see that? Is that a Christian that looks just like the world has nothing of value to offer it? In order for me to have something of value to offer you, I must have something you do not have. This is what this means. That if people's first response to hearing that you're a Christian is, oh, really? There's a problem. There's a problem. 
if people's first response, people who know you, their first response to hearing that you're a Christian is, really? I wouldn't have guessed that. There is a serious problem. Israel's sin was that they wanted so badly to be like the nations around them. And if you read ahead, you'll see another reason why they really wanted this. Verse 19, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel has painted, and here's where we get to this idea of a foolish fantasy. Israel has painted a picture in their mind of what this king will do for them. They painted this picture in their mind that he would rule over them and, and, and most importantly, he would fight for them. He would fight for them. He would fight their battles. And I think if, we're, if, they're, if they were honest, this is the thing that they wanted the most. What's interesting, because in chapter 7, what happened, they literally just had victory over the Philistines because, of their, because they repented and God fought for them. See, they wanted someone to fight their battles for them. And what's the problem with this? Here's the problem. Is that the problem is that everything they said they wanted, God was already doing. Everything that they said they wanted, God was already doing over and over again. We see that God fights for Israel. In fact, the only time where God doesn't fight for Israel, they end up losing. Everything they said they wanted in a king, God was already giving. God was already doing. And you see, this is what sin does, doesn't it? This is what sin does. It causes us to seek satisfaction in things that are not God and assume that those things can provide for us better than God can. That's what sin does, is it makes you think that these things can offer, can give to you what only God can give to you. And they can give it to you better than God can. Like, I know I'm supposed to seek value in God, but I believe that a relationship is what I need to feel good about myself. No. Understanding that you're a child of God made in the image of God and you were purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross is what makes you feel good about yourself. Not what some boy or girl says about you. See, sin blinds you to God's provision and it falsely points you to the world's provision. Sin blinds you to what God promises and provides for you, and it makes you think that the world can give it to you better. So we see a foolish fantasy, totally out of the realm of reality, this foolish fantasy. And the second thing we see is this, a firm warning. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. See, naturally, Samuel is upset. Understandably so. I think there's a few reasons that Samuel could be upset. I think there's multiple reasons. One, he's probably upset about the rejection of his sons. And potentially he's upset about hearing about the, the actions of his sons. For Samuel, this is, this is probably deeply personal. The second thing is that not only did they reject his sons, but he's probably upset about the rejection of him. Hey, Samuel, we know that you're probably about to kick the bucket soon. So could you give us a king? Probably deeply offended by that, but I think very likely, most likely, he's upset about the idolatry of the people. So Samuel is offended. 
Clearly he's upset, but I want you to see what Samuel does. Going on, continuing on, verse 6. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Notice that when Samuel was offended, he went to God in prayer. Oh man, there is a lot in that. Now when Samuel was offended, when Samuel was attacked, when he, Samuel was hurt, when he was angry, rightfully so, he went to God in prayer. And if we're honest, this is not our natural response. This is not our natural response. I firmly believe that prayer is the most underused gift that God has given us. How much stress would be relieved from your life if you would simply just take it to God in prayer? When people offend you, ask yourself this. When people offend you, is your initial response to fire back? Or is your initial response to take it to other people? Or when there's something serious going on, is your first response, I I gotta talk to somebody about this. Or is it to take it to God in prayer? I want you to know, you can expect this from me moving forward. Whenever you come to me with a problem about someone else in this room, the first thing I'm going to ask you, how much have you prayed about it? How much have you prayed about it? If we're honest, probably not at all. This is, I am public enemy number one, okay? I've been stressing about stuff, planning camp next year, and and all these different things, stressing about it, stressing about it, and then when I look at myself, I I realize I haven't once prayed about it. Here I am, you know, preaching the Bible all the time, and not once have I prayed about the things that bother me. Samuel goes and he prays about it. Here's a quote by uh, one commentator put it this way. He says, surely it is the mistake of our life that we carry our burdens instead of handing them over, that we worry instead of trusting, that we pray so little. Well, what is God's response? What is God's response to Samuel? Samuel takes this to God. He he prays. He tells God what has happened and what is God's response. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from this day, I brought, I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. First thing we see is this, is that God tells Samuel to grant them a king. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to get to that in a moment. God reminds Samuel that they're not rejecting Samuel, but they are actually rejecting God. And there's two things we see this. One is that God is actually comforting Samuel here. Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And this just seems totally unfair, doesn't it? What could God have possibly done more for Israel that he hadn't done? Hasn't God proven himself more than capable to lead them? More than capable to provide for them, to defend them, to fight for them? And what you see is that this is actually a serious foreshadowing of Jesus, is it not? Think of Jesus when he's before Pilate. 
and he and Pilate goes to the the angry mob and what what and he says he is this your king should I release the who should I release to you Barabbas or the king of the Jews and what does the mob say we have no king but Caesar that here is not the last time God is rejected by men who don't know what they're talking about Jesus was the rejected king. And what does God point to as the real root of this rejection? Their idolatry. Right? What does he say? He says, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. Notice that that's the issue. The issue isn't that they want someone to fight for them. The issue is they have idolatrous hearts. Notice that God gets directly to the point, right? He gets directly to the real root of the issue. Why is that? Because God knows his people. God knows people. What does the scriptures tell us? Is that Je- it says that Jesus did not need anyone to tell him what was in man because he already knows what is in man. God knows his people. God knows their real motives. God knows Israel's real motives more than Israel knows their motives. Likewise, God knows your motives more than you even know your motives. God knows why you actually are asking for what you're asking for. Which means two things. One, you should genuinely ask God to reveal to you if there is any impure motives in your heart. That's a good thing to ask God. We see in the Psalms where it says, God, show me if there be any sinful way in me. God already knows. You know who doesn't know? You. Ask God to reveal to you, is there any impure motives in your heart? The second thing this means is this. Be genuinely honest in your prayers. God already knows There is nothing you can say that can convince God of something that is different than what's actually going on in your heart. Be honest in your prayers. Even if you feel like what you're saying, you shouldn't even like, even if like what you're saying is, man, I don't, I feel like this is so selfish of me. Say it. He already knows. Say it. He already knows it's on your heart and he's not going to reject you because you say something that's selfish. Thank God. Sometimes God reveals to us what's going on in our heart through prayer. So be honest in your prayers. Then we see that God tells Samuel to warn the people. Now, why would God do this? Why would God tell Samuel to warn the people? Doesn't God know that they're not going to listen? Of course he does. God knows they're not going to listen to the warning, so why does he tell Samuel to warn them? Because this, because information creates responsibility. Information creates responsibility. If people are going to reject God, they should at least make an informed decision. Israel cannot look at God and say, well, we didn't know. Likewise, none of you in this room can stand before God and be like, I didn't know. If Israel was going to go down this road, God wanted them to have zero ignorance about what was going to happen. And what was the warning? Well, we read through it. 
Ultimately, Samuel tells the people, this king that you want, he is going to take, and 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 he is going to take. He's going to take. God's warning to Israel is this, is that that which you think will fix your problems will only create problems. And his message to you is the same. That which you think will fix your problems, that is not God, will only create more problems. This is like when people, there's a lot of people do this when it comes to their relationships. You have two people that are in an unhealthy dating relationship. So what do they do? I know, we'll get married. That'll fix it. Wrong. All marriage does in that situation is make the problems worse. Makes the problems worse. Or you have two people who are in a marriage that's not healthy, so what do they do? I know what I'll do is that we'll have a kid, and that'll bring us together. Wrong again. Wrong again. God is telling them that that which you think will free you will only put you in more bondage. And it's amazing that God issues the same warning to us today. Every week I get up here, I have the opportunity to not only speak incredible encouragement to you, but to speak to you serious warnings. And I'm telling you right now, anything that you are seeking to free you that is not Jesus will only put you in more bondage. Sexual temptation will only put you in more bondage. Desiring a relationship to make, you, to make you feel validated will only put you in more bondage. These things in your life that you continually give yourself over to, these things that promise to give you so much, eventually you will learn that rather than give, all they do is take. Rather than give, all they do is take. You see, you may think that approval from others will give you meaning and purpose. That if people approve of me, if they validate me, that'll give me meaning and, and purpose and joy in my life. But what you'll find is that if that's your mindset, then what happens is when you get it, the more you're a slave to it. The more you're a slave to people's approval. The more you're a slave to people's thoughts and what people think of you. It takes, it takes you far more than you ever want to go. It takes far more from you than you ever thought it would. So Samuel does warn the people. He warns them, and he tells them exactly what God told him to say. And what did the people say? They say, no. You're wrong. You're wrong. We still want a king. Give us a king. They reject Samuel's warnings, and they press on to what they want. Now, here's the question that I want to ask you. Was Samuel a failure because the people rejected his warning? No, he was not. No, he is not. However, I find it interesting. The one of the reasons we don't share the gospel is because we're afraid that we will fail. We would openly acknowledge Samuel was not a failure because they rejected his warning. Likewise, you are not a failure if people reject the gospel when you share it with them. 
You have not failed if people reject the gospel when you share it. However, I will tell you this. You have failed if you don't share it. Samuel is not a failure because they rejected his warning, but he would have been a failure if he didn't open his mouth. Likewise, and I want you to, everyone, I know there's a lot of talking, look, look at me. I mean this with as much love as I can. If you profess to be a Christian and you don't share the gospel, you're a failure. And that is heavy. And that hits hard. But that is the thing we are called to do. And if people reject it every time you share it, it doesn't matter. You're successful by opening your mouth, which is awesome. It's the one thing in your life you can be successful at and not have any results. That's awesome. Take the pressure off of you. They reject him. So we see a foolish fantasy, a firm warning, and the last thing we see is a final verdict. What happens after they do this? Verse 21, And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. We clearly see that Israel presses on. They want their king. And repeatedly what you'll find in this passage is notice how God says, Your king, the king that you choose, your king, your king. Why? Because it's not God's king. Eventually, what you'll find is that Israel will get God's choice for king, and it's David. What I find interesting, and this is only, we can only speculate, but if they would have heeded God's warning, it's very likely, if they would have listened to God's warning, it's very likely that their first king would have been God's choice. And they would have spared themselves a lot of heartache if they would have just had a little bit of perspective that God knows what he's doing. They want their king, so God gives it to them. Now, this is really the focus of the entire passage. Right? I'm not, not going to speak on it a whole lot, but this is really the entire point of the passage. There are times when God will teach you by giving you what you want. Here, God is judging Israel by giving them exactly what they want. What you find is the king they get is Saul. And when they get Saul, Saul is described as he is a foot taller than everybody. He is taller than everybody. He is more handsome than everybody. He is the warrior king that they desire. He is the perfect choice in their eyes. And God gives them not just a king. He gives them in their eyes the perfect king. Why? So he can give them exactly what they want and show them that it's exactly not what they need. God judges them by giving them exactly what they want. Now, I also want you to see that there's a couple reasons that God may do this. One, God may do this to teach a lesson to his children. That if you are a Christian, there are times where God may give you exactly what you think you want for the purpose of teaching you. God is saying, I'm going to allow this simply so you can learn that it's not good for you. In which case, while it may hurt and it's not fun, it is a blessing. It is a blessing. God is getting our gaze off of lesser things by allowing us to be disappointed by lesser things. But there's another reason that God will do this. God will give people what they want as an act of judgment. 
It is because they're distracted by what they actually want that ultimately they're judged for it. We see this all throughout the first chapter of Romans. Do you remember? Romans chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Romans 12, 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. You see this. God is giving them what they want. And it is his judgment by giving them what they want. And what we need to remember is that there are people in this life that you may see them getting all of the things that they want. It's not because they are blessed. It's because they are judged. It's because they're judged. Why do you think a Joel Osteen has millions of dollars? It's not because he's actually blessed by God. All of that money is God's judgment on him. Because he's giving him exactly what he wants. And the people who follow him, he is, they're not victims of him. He is God's judgment on them because they want exactly what he wants. Do you see the problem with this? See, notice this. And here's what you will find. Everyone who rejects Jesus does so willingly. Every person who desires eternity apart from Jesus will get what they want. And this is the point, right? People speak of having the ability to choose whatever they want. Right? This idea of free will and stuff like that. And you know what? That's the problem. Is that you do have the choice of choosing what you want. And that's the problem. Because you choose what you want, and what you want is always not what God wants. If left to our own sinful state... What we desire is ultimately what will lead to our destruction and our judgment. So what do they need? What do we need? What do people in this world that do not know Jesus need? They need a new heart that desires Jesus. And this is the mark of a Christian. This is what makes a Christian a Christian. They desire Jesus as Lord. They desire Jesus to be the king of their lives. And you know what? You can't give someone that desire. No matter how hard I may preach to you and sweat and get turned red in the face, I can't give you that desire. I can't make you want Jesus as your king. But that desire is birthed within someone by the Holy Spirit in response to hearing the gospel. So we have a responsibility to share this gospel and to point people to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By the end of the Old Testament, you'll see that Israel is in shambles. This is the last thing I want to talk about. We're not going to have time for a closing song. I tried. By the end of the Old Testament, you'll find that Israel is in total shambles, and it's a direct result of the sinfulness of their kings. Ultimately, Israel is taken into Babylonian captivity. Israel never really is the same after that, and by the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, where do you find Israel? You find them desperately wondering, is there ever going to be a king? That is what we need. They're left longing for that perfect king. Is there a king that can do what a king should do? And the answer is yes, because his name is Jesus. That all of the kings, even the good ones that Israel had, was just a was just a pale shadow of the king of kings, Jesus. 
And what we see in the New Testament is Jesus, the King of Kings, steps into history to do what a real king does, to deliver his people from their enemies like Israel wanted. But who is that enemy? It's ultimately our sin. He establishes his kingdom in the hearts of his people. So what should we do? We should surrender to this king. We should acknowledge that you and I, we are bad kings. The things that we give ourselves over to in this life are bad kings. And Jesus came and he doesn't take, take, take. What does he do? He gives and he gives and he gives. What does Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus will never take from you more than he has given to you. If you're in this room and you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, please let me know that there is no more freeing thing in this world than surrendering your life to Jesus.